this election is going to matter a lot. Right? I think the policies that come after the, you know, a change in administration will matter a lot. But my, my distinct impression is that you truly can only ignore reality for so long. Right. And so as as long as it is clear that these um, the United States cannot and will not continue to do all that it has done in the European theater as it has for decades, you know, that is something our allies are going to have to deal with. And it is up to us to force them to respectfully, you know, with, you know, respect for them. Or, I mean, there's no need to be rude about any of this, but but you can be respectful and still make the point that this is not sustainable. We are we are not prepared to do this any longer. And you will you will adapt or you will not, and you will have to internalize the risks associated with it. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we are excited to bring you yet another episode, one that has been quite a while coming. Alex Velez-Green is one of the smartest people uh, in our space in the conservative movement. He's a a fellow at the Heritage Foundation. But before we get to that, as always, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything we have cooking as an organization most acutely. uh, We extended our deadline for the uh, summer Fellowship for American Statecraft, two weeks. So now you have until I think like February 15th in 16th. order to apply for it. 16th. Thank you, Nick. Um, we've gotten a ton of applications already. Thank you for everyone who's filled it out. But uh, we figured we'd give people an opportunity just to send a couple more in. Just so you remember, this is where we pay people $3,000 a month for three months in order to get their first job in Washington, D.C. We place them in meaningful House and Senate offices so that they can get the experience they need to stay and to be impactful working on public policy issues like foreign policy or immigration or trade or whatever it is that drives you to be interested in trying to save our country. Um, this week, we were honored to have on Alex Velez-Green. He's a senior policy advisor in the Heritage Foundation's Allison Center for National Security. His analysis focuses on defense, deterrence, and alliance management in the Indo-Pacific, Europe, and the Middle East. He was previously the national security advisor for U.S. Senator Josh Hawley, uh, the representative uh, in the Senate uh, for Missouri, in addition to Eric Schmidt, who's also fantastic. Um, obviously, you guys know Senator Hawley has been one of the most principal voices on foreign policy in the United States Senate for the last couple of years. And so uh, to have the person who in many ways was advising him through all of these major crises happening in the world was was a great joy. Um, Alex has an encyclopedic uh, knowledge about all sorts of different issues. Um, he staffed Senator Hawley on the Senate Armed Services Committee, but he advised on matters relating to deterrence against China, uh, U.S. conventional and nuclear force structure, Taiwanese defense uh, requirements, impact of U.S. military activities in Europe and the Middle East, um, and much, much more. Before that, he was uh, the Defense Strategy and Policy Analyst at Systems Planning and Analysis, Inc., uh, and then before that at the Center for National Security. He's published articles everywhere, uh, The Washington Post, War on the Rocks, National Interest, National Review, Bolton for Atomic Scientists, Russia Matters, and Lawfare, among others. Uh, he speaks at conferences all the time and has traveled widely, and he graduated cum laude from Harvard College. He is very, very smart. We had a fantastic wide-ranging discussion on everything that matters right now in foreign policy, ranging from how everything in Ukraine Ukraine is likely to uh, wrap up what his view of the China conflict is and a little bit about his concerns at the very end about Israel. We, uh, in the members only section, uh, 
reminder, we have YouTube memberships for uh, people who are truthers and statesmen. Go and subscribe for that. Um, we even talked a little bit about the board game of Risk. I thought it was an absolutely fantastic episode. What did you think, Nick? It was great. Uh, I love so these foreign policy episodes are some of my favorite. Uh, when we hop around all these different regions of the world, we, we did talk about risk uh, in the in the bonus section. We talked about um, uh, Alex's favorite uh, general of all time. Uh, very, very interesting, engaging discussion. Um, Alex is definitely someone that you guys should pay attention to. So we'll go now to Alex Velez Green. Alex, thank you for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We always love to hear about how our guests got to where they are today. You've bumped around so many different sides of foreign policy making in Washington, D.C. Tell us the story from from when you were a babe. How did you end up here? <laughs> <laughs> I um, I uh, I don't actually know why I became interested in national security military affairs, but it started early. I remember um, in fourth grade, this is actually it would be right before 9-11, um, growing up just north of the cities, as mentioned Nick earlier. Um, I discovered a book in our elementary school library on guerrilla warfare in Vietnam, and it had like a, a GI with an M16 on the front, and that is like my defining memory of when this all started. <laughs> um, yeah, so from there, I mean, I just, I've just been fascinated by it. Um, growing up, I remember in high school, that's very popular as you can imagine, I was just surfing Wikipedia in the evenings, learning about the military, and then um, took that to college, um, where I you know, studied political science, but truly, really trying to focus on this question of war. Right? Why do wars happen? How they started? How they fought? How they won? How they ended? Um, why do states go to war? How do they use that? Um, focus a lot on the Middle East. Spent time in the region, um, in Egypt in particular, during the Arab Spring, trying to sort of apply some of those lessons. Um, and then when I came to Washington, I was still trying to work on the Middle East. Um, and this was, I guess, about 10 years ago, kind of in the seam, right, as we were starting to transition out of the GWAT and thinking more about Russia and then China. Um, and so I went to the Center for New American Security, where I instantly also started to work uh, with Bridge Colby. And there I was still able to work on Middle East stuff, but I got to focus a lot more on Russia. Um, we got we had a track two dialogue, some of some folks uh, from Russia. We were doing Can you explain what the term track two dialogue means. Yeah, it's one sure. of those terms that no one ever explains to young people. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. No, good flag. It's yeah. um, basically it's it's, you know, sometimes governments speak to each other. So the U.S. and the Russian government speak to each other. Um, sometimes governments don't want to speak to each other. So then there are opportunities for folks who are not officially part of government to talk to one another. So you have folks who are close to the Kremlin, but not Russian officials talking to folks who are close to the administration here, but not officials. And that's a, that's basically a track mm -hmm. to dialogue. And that is not a Logan Act violation. No, to my knowledge. <laughs> uh, I certainly hope not. Yeah. Uh, but, it, it, but it was, I mean, it was fascinating, right? I mean, yeah. you get to sit across the table with some folks, or in my case, backbenching across the table um, from some folks who, you know, you read a lot about, you hear a lot about, but you get to, you know, listen to them. You mm -hmm. hear what they think, how they see things, or at least how they're saying it in that particular context. Um, so that was fascinating. Got to do that. Um, after CNAS went into defense industry, um, where I was working on uh, supporting the Trump administration's implementation of what was called the nuclear posture review, so basically overhauling America's nuclear forces, um, and then also implementation of the national defense strategy from that administration. And that's really where I started to focus a lot more on China. That is when I became, began to appreciate just how big of a hole we, we were digging ourselves mm -hmm. into. And by at that point, it was bad, but it wasn't nearly as bad as it is today. Um, and that was also really the focus of my time in the Senate. So after industry, went to the Senate, worked for Senator Josh Hawley on the Armed Services Committee for, for uh, about four years. Um, incredible privilege, uh, not just- Is that 2019 to 23 or- 19 to 23, yep. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so you didn't join immediately when he came to the Senate? No, uh, he called uh, that spring, okay. and I jumped over in May. Okay, um, so I was a little bit late, uh, but uh, but still early enough to get a sense of kind of to, to sort of feel the trajectory of that as he was sort of taking off um, and really charting out. I you know I'm biased, but like laying out, I think a really credible vision for a conservative foreign policy that's aligned to America's interests. Um, and that that really grapples with the hard issues in front of us, and it was a privilege to be part of that. And that is uh, now, in large measure, what I'm, I'm building on at the Heritage Foundation. So, um, it's been it's been a it's been a good journey so far. It's fascinating because you've you've seen the elements of of Washington's foreign policy culture from multiple different angles, whether it was. Um, through the private sector, through kind of more mainstream think tanks, now a more conservative uh, movement-aligned one, and and in Congress as well, it's probably given you a, a pretty broad overview of of what the foreign policy culture in DC is. Um, you know, one thing I've heard from lots of people over the years is that they don't realize that such a thing exists until they've spent some time in it. Give me your overview of what you discovered as you spent more and more time here what were the things you noticed and you were like hey that's kind of strange or why does that work that way what, yeah. what what were the things you happened to notice i um i remember at cnas we had a there was an initiative related to the bipartisan consensus um and sustaining that consensus and, and i recall a time when you know for me getting into this this line of work i was like oh that's necessarily <laughs> right um, which is ironic, right? Because I was I, even at that time, I was aware of the contradictions inherent in a lot of things we we're doing, the fact that it hadn't gone well, right? But this idea of a bipartisan consensus was still sort of held up as this necessarily good thing to pursue. Um, and and I love bipartisanship, bipartisanship as much as the next person. However, you know, in service of the right ends and the right policies, and that um, you know, over time, and especially in the Senate, I came to appreciate how many of the pathologies that. Um, have caused administrations from both sides of the aisle to pursue policies that leave us worse off. They are bipartisan. They're, they're held um, deeply and often, I think, uncritically by folks on both sides of the aisle, well intentioned as they may be. Um, and I think that, that that is a starting point for understanding, at least for me, kind of that that culture, right? Um, you can go to you know, prominent think tank left of center, prominent think tank right of center, and encounter many of the same things. Right. I think, you know, in terms of one one aspect of that that stood out has stood out to me consistently is um I mean, I guess hubris is sort of one word for it, but this 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 um two sided thing, right? On the one hand that this overinflation, overestimation of American power in the world, uh, and then sort of a consequent like inflation of America's interests, right? You end up having conversation. I mean, President Biden said recently, like, you know, almost dismissively, yes, of course, we can deal with Russia. And Iran and China all at once. Why? Because America, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, that's not altogether different, Heck yeah. <laughs> right? But that's not altogether different from what Senator McConnell would say, yeah. right? Or many other prominent Republicans. It, it, it's, but it's, but it is in, in a meaningful sense completely divorced from reality, mm-hmm. right? And, and so too is this sense that you know, I think Dan Codwell was talking about this on the show recently that everything matters, right? Everything in the world matters for American interests, and it all matters equally. So we have to pursue it all with equal vigor, sort of no matter the consequences. Mm-hmm. And don't talk about trade-offs because they don't exist. They can't exist, right? Because if you acknowledge they do, then everything else falls apart. Like yeah. that, I think in a nutshell, has been very much my experience dealing with the foreign policy culture here, with the blob, as it were. What do you think is the biggest divide between foreign policy professionals on the right 
and left, not in terms of conflict, but in terms of motivation? Hmm. That's a good question. I, um, it's funny. It's a hard question to answer in large measure because they often rally around the same perspective, right? <laughs> right. Like, you know, um, prominent Democratic senators and prominent Republican senators will both want to, you know, stick it out in Ukraine for reasons like vaguely defined. I, you know, I think, um, I think maybe to say, put it succinctly, there is still, I think, this idea in certain conservatives or neoconservative circles, right, that America can and ought to be a benevolent hegemon of the world, mm-hmm. right? And, like, that's a goal worth pursuing. It's, you know, America almighty and 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 sort of forceful at the front. Mm-hmm. I think – and they, they offer a set of recommendations to get there. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of prominent Democrats offer, offer the same sets of recommendations but envision a different outcome where one were a sort of maybe we're implicitly – you know, supreme to all, but it's really much more of a cooperative world. So. Yeah, they're much more bashful about it. They're like, <laughs> they talk in more sort of diplomatic. Right, right. Terms. But it's the same thing, yeah. right? You know, I, um, and you can tell in part by the fact that they're advocating the same policies. Yeah. Um, so I think, but they're both basically imperial stories, right? Yeah. A, 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 like a sustained version of what we've been doing since the 90s that is sort of structurally impossible and has and materially, I mean, I tell people, you know, I'd say this to people constantly, like, Okay, so you want to keep doing what we've been doing. Like, we've run that experiment, right? The natural experiment has occurred time and again in different contexts, right? And we've seen the results. It's not good. Um, but they still want to do it anyway. So so one motivation that, especially online, is very popular to assign to Washington, D.C. when it comes to foreign policy is money. If you had to handicap, what is the relative financial pecuniary influence on our foreign policy making in dc when it comes to the overall pie i'm not looking for exact numbers yeah just sure. a temperature check uh do you think that stuff is overstated understated something in between i think it's um so so you can you can you can say confidently that there's some portion of the people involved in this policy making process that do it you know for financial reasons right like you know, you talk about foreign agents, you mm-hmm. talk in some ways about certain lobbies for certain organizations, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that, that is explicitly their intent and purpose, yeah. setting aside any other motivations. You'd have to assume they are completely failing at their job all the time for it to be zero. <laughs> so it's yes. at the very least And also zero. that they're like highly miserable because <laughs> like, you know, they can't not be if that's yeah. their job. Um, what I find more interesting is sort of that, that sort of remaining part of the mm-hmm. pie, right? Um, you know, because in my experience, a lot of the folks who work in industry, work with industry, um, work at think tanks that take industry money are, in my experience, a lot of them are perfectly good folks, well-intentioned folks who truly believe that the things they're advocating are um, better for the country, better for the world, right? They would not to themselves connect the dots to suggest a corrupt, corrupting influence of, of money. Um, you know, at the same time, you can't deny the fact, right, that you know, money influences a lot of things. It influences what projects you take on. It influences even subtly what conclusions certain projects come to. It influences the information environment you're operating in, right? You know, if you're if you're doing research and you're doing, you know, you're you're trying to, you know, find sources for a particular claim and eight of them track back to defense industry spending, you know, the you know, you have to ask the question, are those sources and the stories they're telling um objective, right? So I think, you know, I think it is my, my impression has been that most of the folks sort of in this space are good human beings who happen to have ideas I, I fiercely disagree with. Um, but behind that, you know, I think it, it would be um, 
kind of ridiculous not to acknowledge. There's a lot of money in this. A lot of people stand to make money in this. Um, and that's a reality we have to deal with. Fascinating. So you were in the Senate and have been in Washington during what I think has been the most tectonic moment of shift in conservative foreign policy in the last 20 years, not even necessarily anchored to the Trump administration itself. Uh, in fact, I think the bulk of it began after, namely when the Ukraine war started. It's It's been this two-year window of time where we've seen in a very numerically transparent way, more and more of, say, the Republican congressmen, uh, just to take a, a small aspect of it, move on this issue. Give me your overview of, of what it's been like to observe that, um, what you've noticed in terms of um, how the strategic culture in the GOP is changing because of it, uh, and and why you think that is. I, um, you know, it's, it's uh, maybe just to start a little before, you know, when when I got to the Senate to work for Senator Hawley in 19, there was a very clear sense that things were wrong across the board, right? You know, we were still in Afghanistan. There were other, you know, problems with national security policy. And, you know, he really led the charge, I think, to try and start, you know, really push that ship from the Senate's perspective. You know, I think President Trump deserves huge credit for even, even just teaching folks that, yeah, actually, it is possible, viable, and in fact, you know, you can succeed by challenging that consensus, right? So he set, sort of set the terms for the the, the fights that would follow, um, and then you know, in the Senate, you know, knocking that door, knocking that, knocking that door, and we'd seen sort of incremental progress; things were moving, um, and then and then Ukraine happened, right? And 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 sort of that, a lot of that sort of intensified and accelerated, um, in part because it was a forcing function, right? Like it's it's hard to be uh, stake out a neutral or ambivalent position about this this war. Um, not least because it's happening and it's kind of brutal and, and obviously so, but because voters have a feeling have feelings about it, right? This is something that's going to animate um, the base. And you know, I uh, I have found it extremely refreshing and important to see, particularly in the House, but also in the Senate, um, conservatives coming around and recognizing that you know, one being responsive to their constituents because that's like. It's maybe novel to say, and it shouldn't even have to be said, but that doesn't always happen, right? That's good to see, I think. Um, and also, you know, start to grapple with, you know, some of the realities, right? Senator Vance has talked, I think, really eloquently about the trade-offs piece. You know, Senator Hawley, uh, you know, sent a letter to Secretary Blinken sort of teeing this up um, as well. You know, there's, you know, there's that aspect of it. There's valid question about, well, why, why, why are we here? What exactly is it that we seek, right? And re regardless of where you're on the spectrum, this is a question worth answering, but the fact that it's being asked suggests we've learned a lesson, right? Because we spent far too long in Iraq, far too long in Afghanistan without having really asked these questions, right? Um, you know, and so on. And, and to your point, like the results are, are starting to show. I mean, the fact is it's it's hard to see a path forward for Ukraine aid today, right? Um, and, and that's, I think, a testament to the fact that, you know, Republicans in particular, particularly in the House, are asking those tough questions, are holding their ground, and are willing to really um, spend capital on this really important issue. So I think broadly it's indicative of the fact that the conservative movement is shifting uh, away from sort of primacy and more towards a, a, a position of realism and restraint, as it were. Um, and that's really where the debate is now kind of recentering. And I think that's um, good for the movement. I think it's good for the country. Um, and uh, and also, incidentally, I think it's good for for many of our allies, right? Like, 
the, the status quo is not sustainable for NATO, right? So if you're thinking about this from the perspective of a transatlanticist who's, you know, wedded to NATO and really, you know, really cares about the alliance's future, and I do too, um, this is in many ways, you know, a very useful exercise for allies to grapple with the reality that the United States cannot and will not do all the things we've always done in terms of subsidizing their defense and their security, um, tolerating high levels of free riding. They've got to adapt. And in doing so, they can make sure that NATO is, again, I think, effective for this century. But um, but that's kind of where I see where we are today. Do you think we've reached <clears throat> peak, you know, conservative resistance to funding foreign wars? Or do you think that is going to keep going up? In other words, like you had you had Trump campaigning on assuming the same Congress. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like you had Trump campaign on. A lot of these same things um, in in sixteen, and then when he came into office, like you know, most of those members were kind of ambivalent to to the things that he wanted to do. Do you envision a similar situation where we kind of slide back to the norm, or do you think it's mostly uphill from here? No, I think I, I think these are durable trends, right? And I think these are durable trends that predate Trump. You know, I still remember when he stood on the stage in um, I guess it was fifteen. Um, and basically said the Iraq war was was not a wise decision, right? Like he said that everyone, everyone, all everyone stood back. We're like, oh, my God, it's great. Donald yeah. Trump's going to implode. And then he didn't. Right. <laughs> you know, but the reason he didn't is because he was speaking to a, a, something that was that voters had seen and recognized for years prior. Right. Yeah. And and that has persisted in some ways amplified over time. Ukraine is doing that again. Right. And you're seeing that that representatives are following that. There's like mm-hmm. a lag time for sure. Um, but the trends all point in that direction. I tell this to Europeans too, <laughs> and also some of my Republican colleagues on the Hill. You know, this is not a, there's nothing, just from an empirical perspective, there's no good reason to think this is a flash in the pan. These are durable mm-hmm. trends. Now, I think, you know, from from my perspective, the, um, so I think from my perspective, again, this is this is good news if you're someone who would consider yourself a realist or, or or someone who considers yourself more of a restrainer, right? Who wants to exercise American power decisively as required, but like with prudence, right? And not go seek fights out. I think where the debate then becomes, okay, you know, under that rubric, where is it still worth defending America's interests, right? Um, and, uh, and, but that is an infinitely better conversation to be having, right. Than you know, fighting all these peripheral wars, not even getting to ask that question because you've sort of the debates over before it even began. Cause you don't have the ability to make those choices anymore. Yeah. What has, uh, been the, um, and you can obviously anonymize this, but like <laughs> what, what has been the kind of European reaction to hearing what you just said? It's actually, you know, um, it's like stages of grief, right? <laughs> you know, I um, uh, we used to get along at these conferences, and now you guys won't take our phone calls anymore, right? You or, don't text or, me good morning, or, or anymore. you take my phone calls, but you don't say nice things anymore, right? <laughs> like, you know, I um, it, it's different, right? And, and as you'd imagine, there there are some folks I, I interact with from around Europe, um, who are just like they're still very much in the denial phase, mm-hmm. right? Um, and they may never get out of that phase, but there's a lot of folks, um, who, you know, who, uh, who did see Trump, President Trump's, uh, president's, uh, administration as like, as that flash in the pan. Right. And then he, you know, we have President Biden and, and, and then they're like, oh, okay, it's all over. Thank God. Yeah. Right. Return um, to normalcy. <laughs> right. Exactly. But then Ukraine happens. Right. Mm-hmm. And then 
all of a sudden U.S. aid to Ukraine it starts to hit some mm. some obstacles, and then they're like, "Oh my gosh, maybe we were wrong. Maybe this wasn't just a flash in the pan. Those trends you were talking about. Let's have a conversation. Tell us more." And that is increasingly the feedback I'm having right now. I get um, you know embassies reach out, folks on the continent reach out. I think I actually owe somebody a message, right? And the question is, what's happening, yeah. right? Like, what do we need to do to prepare? Mm. I will say, um, there's a. Uh, you know, just to give a plug where it's due, European Council on Foreign Relations. Mm -hmm. They are uh, a think tank out in Europe, but they, more than anybody, have really grappled with this. They are the ones who came up with this framework of uh, primacists, prioritizers, restrainers, and have made the case for some time to their fellow Europeans that, um, no, this is this is reality. This is something we're going to have to deal with. So, so the, and, I, and I take that, I mean, just analytically, I think it's sound, but it's also, you know, when you have an institution like that, offering those kind of public yeah. assessments, that matters. So I think, you know, um, I think this election is going to matter a lot. Right? I think the policies that come after, the, you know, a change in administration will matter a lot. But I, my my distinct impression is that you truly can only ignore reality for so long, right? And so as, as long as it is clear that these, um, the United States cannot and will not continue to do all that it has done in the European theater as it has for decades, you know, that is something our allies are going to have to deal with. And it is up to us to force them to respectfully, you know, with, you know, respect for them. Or, I mean, there's no need to be rude about any of this, but but you can be respectful and still make the point that this is not sustainable. We are we are not prepared to do this any longer. And you will you will adapt or you will not. And you will have to internalize the risks associated with it. <clears throat> to peek behind the curtain again, when it comes to the conversations that American policymakers have with European policymakers. You know, we have the maybe slightly caricatured perspective of of what the European position is, you know, you know, lazy Euro poors who don't want to pay for their own defense, whatever. But but are do they self-consciously like acknowledge behind closed doors that they're getting a free lunch? Or is there is there something more sophisticated going on there in terms of how they conceive of their own security responsibilities? I think um, so. Yes and no. I've had conversations where folks are just very candid, <laughs> and honestly, I kind of respect it. Yeah. Right? They say, "No, we're totally taking advantage of you." And also, why wouldn't we? <laughs> right? You know, because if you're if you're in Berlin and you know the U.S. is going to do the heavy lifting for your purposes, why would you? Right? And and that's a, I I can respect that. I can hate that, but I can also respect the sort of clarity of mind mm -hmm. that brings you to that you know remarkably instrumental conclusion <laughs> um in some ways it's it i much prefer those conversations um because they're those are folks who you can tell are grappling reality yeah right and those are the kinds of folks who you can you can have more confidence that okay but now what if that's no longer true what if your assumption is no longer valid that mm -hmm. we are going to keep doing that these are the kinds of folks you'd expect to sort of run the same calculation and come to a different outcome mm -hmm. that's different from you know folks who don't even <laughs> for them it's it's all it's all magic it's all just abstractions of you know alliance unity and you know transatlantic relationship and war is over and it, or at least it should be and you know <laughs> like i you know this this class of folks who these are the hardest ones to talk to who um speak in cliches right mm. and they've never actually thought through okay what is what does it mean to defend europe Right. Okay. If it takes this many, you know, of A, B, and C, but like eighty percent of B, C, and D are coming from America, and also those are needed in the Pacific, so they're not going to be available. Oh my, we have a problem, right? But they haven't even gotten often to that point because 
they're still sort of wrapped up in those bumper stickers. And I and I um I put you know tremendous uh, responsibility on this administration for not correcting that. Right? We have a war in Europe. If ever there was going to be a time to work in a proactive, forceful, respectful, but but all the same straightforward sense to convince Europeans now is the time to really step up, right, and take care of yourselves, take primary responsibility for Europe's uh, conventional defense. This was it, right? And instead, you know, you've seen marginal improvements from some folks. I, the Balts and the Poles, you know, typically are. Uh, you know, really leaning in because they're on the front lines. It, this is this is not abstract to them. But, you know, for a lot of the rest of Europe, it's all like, OK, we'll commit to do this eventually. And maybe we will, but probably not. <laughs> you know, and and that is that's a pot. That's a failure on the part of the Europeans. It's also fair on part of this administration. Right. Um, in substantial part, because they've, you know, even as they've encouraged and asked kindly for people to do more, they've also completely neutered the incentives. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, because we have taken the lead in a in a massive sense of military aid. So then why would other countries do it, right? So long as they thought we would keep doing it. We surge forces to the theater to reassure them that you're safe, right? But if they feel safe, then why would they dramatically change their position? So this is this is a European problem, it's also an American problem. Um and uh and I'm very hopeful we can I think we're making progress on it. Certainly in the conservative movement. We're making progress on it. You know, Sumantra Matra's, you know, uh, article or research on dormant NATO, for instance, right? These, there's a, there's a lot more detailed analysis happening today about what alternative frameworks can look like. Um, and that is necessarily going to make it much easier for a future conservative administration to move um, down a new path. Do you think that the <clears throat> American diplomatic corps and the foreign policy class are way too obsessed with Europe? Yes. Why is that? You know, I think um, all the history, the art. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. I mean, like, who doesn't love going to Europe? It's, it's very low. I mean, you know, I've I, never I, been to mainland Europe. Wouldn't know. <laughs> so, uh, Google the Google the image. I, you know, I um, I think there's uh, I think there's probably a few reasons. Right. Like one is, you know, a lot of the folks who are leading our foreign policy today. They are either cold warriors right at, right at the end of it, or they came of age professionally as we were winning it, right? You know, a lot of the folks who are in very senior positions today were just really cutting their 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 teeth in government in the nineties, right? When we had beaten the Soviet Union and and sort of, you know, there was this sort of euphoria and sense of end of history and all the rest. Um and and that my impression has been that that was and is based, you know, largely on observation, also on many conversations, that that's the formative experience, that's the framework. You know, and by contrast, you know, for me, you know, when I when I, my friend was a lot more informed, for example, by the failures of Iraq in Iraq, right? And so, you know, I, I think the you know where you're coming from in in the sense has says a lot about you know where where you're going, right? If that is your sort of reference point and the framework that you <clears throat> enter this all with, you're more likely to stay there. Um, Can you I, give us your like? So I, I think of this uh, in terms of physical analogy, sedimentary rock. So like going back over the last like 40 years, what are the slices that you see represented in the foreign policy professional class of people who came of age at different times? Yeah, I um, I see uh, three main ones with like a caveat. I'll do the caveat first. I had a great conversation. It was like 11 p.m. with, uh, <laughs> with a, 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 a someone who was senior to me at CNS back then. I don't know why I was in the office at that hour, but um, we were talking, and this person 
we actually I made the uh, made the point about Iraq um, and how that informed my skepticism about use of military force in the Middle East today. He says, well, actually, for me, it was Rwanda. It was this sense that you know, this horrible thing was happening and we could have done something better, but we didn't. Right. He said that for me was really was really uh, what year was Rwanda. I want to say, oh, gosh, what decade? 90s 90s it was in the 90s yeah, yeah. it was okay. the mid 90s okay. if i'm not mistaken you want to um, say like 94 that's what i was like thinking that. but i didn't want to say it. yeah <laughs> it's okay um, they can fact check me first, there you go, there you go. i'm with you on the fact check both of us um which i thought was fascinating yeah. but i think you know in terms of sort of broad you know layers I, you know i think of that sort of um post cold war generation in the 90s then you've got a generation who really came of age at the height of the wars the GWAT, right afghanistan iraq and they display many of the same, I would suggest, like dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they are wedded to the Middle East, much as the transatlanticists of the 90s, uh, and for that matter, parts mm-hmm. of the 2000s, are wedded to Europe. Because right? the people who made it into the foreign policy making class were people who were partisans of the war, not opponents of it. Right. There, and you're, that's like speaking of like structural factors, yeah. right? You know, there's that. There's the fact that like if you came of age and were doing like very, you know, if you if you were a hard charge in the 90s, you're probably a Europe expert, right? Yeah. You're probably really deep on that, Right. It makes sense. That's probably something you've sustained over time. Mm-hmm. It makes sense then that, you know, even for pecuniaries, like that's where you're you're inclined to, yeah. you know, try and focus, right? Yeah. Ditto, you know, if you were a four-star general in the, you know, in one of the wars in the Middle East, which is, you know, obviously didn't go very well, but like, <laughs> you know, you probably have very strong opinions at that. At yeah. that. And and that's naturally where your, your mind goes. There's like, and then there's like the personal side of it too. And, and I think it isn't completely understandable, right? That, you know, you spend... Considerable amount of time, you know, you, you you sacrifice, you've seen others sacrifice, maybe you order the others positions where they make sacrifices in these kinds of conflicts, and you want to sort of see that through, right? Like these these things make sense, right? I think we can observe that and, and, and recognize these dynamics and, and ha- the effects they can have, um, and, you know, without belittling them, but acknowledging still that those effects matter, right? Um, and then I think maybe just to, you know, to finish the question, like the, that third sentiment tree layer is you know, kind of the reaction, right? And I actually, um, I think we're still figuring out what exactly that means, right? You know, I think I think everything we've sort of talked about today is, is reflective of this, of what's happening in this layer, mm-hmm. right? There's clearly a reaction against the kinds of bad decisions that have occurred, that's playing out, mm-hmm. right? Um, but but it's still it's still being sorted, right? Um, and I think that's that's exciting. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. It's hard to imagine us ending up in a worse place than we've been in the past. Um, but I think that's yet to be sort of finalized. Interesting. So give me your lay of the land on the state of play with Ukraine right now. Um, what do you think the, the basic summary of the strategic posture of the United States is right now, Ukraine, Russia, the different competing factions in Europe? Um and then after that, I'm going to ask you to predict what's going to happen. So. Oh, excellent, excellent. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the the high the the um, the headlines Ukraine war is an stalemate, but it's not really right because if you think about the structure of this conflict, it's not an equal. Not, both sides are not equally powerful, right? Russia has substantial material advantages, substantial industry advantages, manpower advantages, right? Um, to the degree Ukraine is able to sort of match or more more to the point they like mitigate those advantages, it's only with substantial foreign aid, mm-hmm. right? So in a vacuum, um, 
we may be at a stalemate today in the battlefield and ukraine should be able to do you know so long as it's on the defensive do more with less um but this is an a this is this is a lopsided contest mm-hmm. um so to the degree and and i you know my personal opinion is that we do have an interest in ukraine being able to defend itself and to deter russia from attacking in the future right like i think that is important just as a matter of you know preserving depth on nato's eastern frontier i think it's you know a useful thing in general to end the cycle of conflict um like you know that's been going on now for a decade i think these are good things right but but you know this is a case where the journey matters in some cases as much as the destination how do you get there um given the lopsided nature of the contest you know you can get there ostensibly with the united states continuing to pour resources in right but you know for reasons we've discussed and others like that's not a viable solution it's not mostly because we have higher priorities and very limited resources with which to service all of them so that puts us in a place where if you want ukraine to be able to defend itself effectively and deter Russia, thereby bringing this war to a conclusion and, and ending the cycle of conflict, Europe has to provide the bulk of the military aid for it to do so. You know, in terms of that's in terms of uh, weapons, it's in terms of industrial support, so Ukraine can produce what it needs to a certain degree as well, right? And other things. This is this is kind of where we are in the conflict today. We are in this sort of transition. We are moving from a place where the U.S. has has um, allowed Ukraine to contest right Russia's advantages resulting in you know an earlier successful counteroffensive this counteroffensive was not successful um and now you know an opportunity to be on the defensive and potentially hold the line right we are transitioning out of that phase it seems right what comes next we're not sure right if europe steps up you know you can imagine that you know just by virtue of some of the production you know europe having to ramp up production to other things right even if they do it with all urgency you would imagine that you know It'll be some time before Ukraine gets the weapons it needs from Europe to, you know, mount another sustained counteroffensive, right? So you you sort of factor that in. But but if we move in that direction, Europe does move with urgency. You could expect a world where, you know, some some um, rocky shoals now, notwithstanding, you get to a place where where now Ukraine can in fact get to those outcomes, right? If Europe does not, then I don't know. I think um, that's a world where. Um, where, I mean, you just look at the map where Russia has substantial advantages. If Europe is not going to help Ukraine mitigate those, then, then folks can sort of do the math. So Europe has enjoyed the ability to very affordably give facial support to Ukraine throughout this war because the United States was bearing the substantial supermajority of the cost. How deep do you think that strategic support actually is in Europe? Are there certain countries or forces on the continent that are more invested in it or less? Um, if the rubber met the road, suppose it's very clear that no more Ukraine aid can pass in the United States. Who would be the first to cave and say, let's wrap this up and move on to a, a new strategic um, status quo? It's a good question, and I'm not sure. I, you know, I think... You're completely right. There's a diversity of views, right? Folks in Eastern Europe, um, the Balts, the Poles, like they get it, right? They're they're right there. They have committed a lot of aid. They've committed a lot of their own defenses, and and they're um, you know very much leading in that regard. You look past them, you know, especially at Germany, France, others, especially Germany, and and that very much becomes sort of the swing state, right? Where Germany goes matters a lot just by virtue of scale. Um, it's it's hard to say. I will say this though. You know, it is it is entirely plausible to me 
that it becomes clear the U.S. is no longer going to provide all, all this. And and you see this like general softening of positions, you know, in Paris and Berlin and other spots enough that like basically, OK, we're going to we're going to acquiesce. Right. And, and try to come to you know a, a quick resolution, you mm-hmm. know, and and take what we can get. The, the basic challenge there is that so long as you, the structural the, uh, asymmetry I described earlier, so long as Russia wants all of Ukraine and has those lopsided advantages, then you should expect this cycle of conflict to continue, right? Because you, you'd have a ceasefire, you'd have both sides sort of consolidate, but Russia would be expected to consolidate more, right, and be more powerful on the back mm-hmm. end of it, still have those sort of imperial ambitions, mm-hmm. and then try again, and we're sort of back in the same cycle. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ukraine immediately has to rebuild a country that barely yeah, exists. Right, anymore. exactly. And without, you know, for the foreign military that would have allowed them to, you know, hold the line in the first place, mm-hmm. they're gonna have a hard time building the military required to do right. Like you basically you've sort of hit pause, but you haven't fundamentally changed the outcome, mm-hmm. right? So even if European countries thinking about Germany in particular convince themselves that, okay, okay, you know, we'll just roll over and that'll be the end of it, like, you know, just from a realist's perspective, that that seems unlikely to work, right? You may delay some of this. You may sort of put some time on the clock, but you're not materially mm-hmm. changing the underlying factors to make war likely. They will have to deal with this again. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having said that, you know, there was a moment when it seemed like Berlin was um, going to do something differently. Mm-hmm. In the earliest part of the conflict, uh, February 22, I recall, you know, the tone, you know, you know, down to sort of the interpersonal dynamic dynamics, you know, of the Germans was uh, was very different. There's a sense of fear. There's a sense of recognition that, oh, my gosh, something has changed and we have to do differently. Right. This is when it looked like there was an expectation that, that the Russians would be able to take Kiev quickly and that Ukraine would effectively cease to exist. Um, and then Germany's Polish buffer would be on the front lines, mm-hmm. right? They would no longer have Ukraine and, you know, Poland and the balls, right, sort of shielding them. Like, no, you'd have, you know, Russian force in Belarus and Ukraine, then Poland would be sort of the last line for Germany's at risk. And in that moment is when it seemed more than I'd ever seen before or heard before that Germany was prepared to do the heavy lifting. But then, like we were saying before, um, you know, Captain America swooped in. And, and again, not to say that there aren't certain things that we, you know, you know, rightly helped the Ukrainians with, but overall the policy has served to reduce that sort of perception of threat and urgency and need on the part of Berlin. So all to say, you know, if that if things change in the battlefield in a way that convince Berlin they are their interests are in fact in real danger, you know, I can see them doing the right thing. Um, but unfortunately it seems like it may take that kind of impetus for them to get there. So do you think that Germany is more likely to stay hawkish on this conflict than France's. I mean, if past is any indication, you would expect that. The question then becomes, well, how much, right? And how much more than just pure rhetoric? Mm-hmm. And I think that would be driven um, more than anything by again what what's happening. What is what do they see happening in the battlefield, and what can they reasonably expect to happen? Mm-hmm by virtue of American policy, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the ideal outcome is they are convinced one way or another that the US will not be able to provide everything that it has. And as a result, unless they do more, then Ukraine will be at a significant military disadvantage. And then, you know, there's a substantially increased risk that the Russians make advances, right? 
If Berlin's convinced of that, then ideally they change course mm-hmm. at that time preemptively rather than waiting for that actually to happen. This is a kind of a strange question. Um, the world is kind of out of practice of doing armistices. It hasn't, and it certainly hasn't happened in very recent times, you know, in the social media age and the democracy versus autocracy framework of uh, foreign policy age. Uh, do you think that, you know, a conventional both sides come to the table armistice agreement that is anything other than Ukraine gets everything that it wants and Russia gets nothing is even politically tenable in Western life? Like, would would there be pressure um, on the Biden administration or the British or France and Germany to reject anything that seems to be giving Putin a win for this war? Um, are we just less capable in the West of being realistic about bringing these conflicts to an end? Yeah, this, I mean, it's a great question. And I think it kind of gets to the heart of the matter, right? You know, this, you know, somewhere we were talking before about hubris, right? Like th- this is in some ways a, um, like a, a learning experience in a fundamental sense, right? You cannot have it all. War is a great teacher, right? Like, you know, there will definitely be pressure. But there's also the reality that under no foreseeable conditions, like, the Ukrainians going to get Crimea back militarily, yeah. right? That's hard, right? Um, now, you know, does that mean Europeans or whomever has to agree in an armistice to like n- formally acknowledge that, you know, Russia owns it? I mean, you know, these are things that diplomats will dispute at the table, but there are certain realities that have to be grappled with. Um, and I think, you know, as this goes on, it becomes, again, it becomes harder and harder and harder to ignore those realities. And so, you know, when there comes a time to negotiate a conclusion to this conflict, um, you know, those will be the facts that Europeans have to deal with, whether, and Americans too, whether they want to or not. And, you know, you can find different ways to sort of, you know, take the edge off some aspects of that in negotiations and the final framing and messaging and all the rest, even the contents of whatever particular document. But, um, but, you know, so long as Russia maintains the ability to impose certain outcomes and we cannot change that at tolerable cost, then those are outcomes in large measure that, that we may just have to live with. Break it down for us in terms of like percentage likelihood outcome. What do you think is most likely to happen, least likely to happen to bring an end to this conflict? I think the only way this conflict ends um, with anything like a Ukrainian state like folks want to see is if Europe steps up and takes the lead in providing Ukraine military aid. If Europe does this, then I think there's every reason to expect that you can expect Ukraine to mount a successful defense at some line, right? I mean, where's, you know, you'd have to pick a map and then talk through specifics, but to mount a successful defense, to hold off further Russian advances, to sort of stabilize the, the ground there and and make clear to Moscow that, that they're just not going to be able to do better. Right. With European military aid, that should be possible. Right. And that is an all, I think, like a relatively very good outcome. Right. That is an outcome where you've basically restored equilibrium. Right. Where, where you know, there's no longer this lopsided dynamic with, a, with a, an aggressive state who knows it can do better. You still have this aggressive state, but it can't. Right. This is a recipe for durable peace. This is what the Europeans can, can provide if they choose to do so. Um, absent that, it, it's hard to see that outcome. It's hard to see a path to that outcome. 
it's extremely difficult. Um, you know, whether that means that, that Russia ultimately is able to take all of Ukraine, I mean, that's a hard thing to do, right? They are all, it's already been very expensive for them to take what they've had, um, no less hold it. Um, but I think you'd have to conclude that absent that kind of change in posture from the Europeans, the Russians will be in a position to, to take more ground. Um, and it will be harder for the Ukrainians to mount a conventional defense. And you may end up back in a scenario like what General Mark Milley was talking about um, prior to the war and, you know, uniquely sensible comments about, you know, getting ready for things like an insurgency or like this, right? This is an outcome worth avoiding if we can. I think we can if the Europeans step up. And I think that's really the story. It's a story that the Biden administration needs to be sending, but it hasn't, right? It's a story that, that Europeans are, I think, increasingly primed to receive just by virtue of the fact that it's dawning on them that this may be the reality they're dealing with. Um, but we just got to, we have to make it very clear and ultimately they have to make the choice. Moving on to uh, China, which is the primary um, venue where, where you believe that America's strategic posture should be focused. The classic cope in Washington for these last few months has been, oh, defending Ukraine makes it less likely that China will invade Taiwan. What say you? No. <laughs> no. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I guess credit for trying, right? I mean, the, some of these arguments are genuinely yeah. creative. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, it's, uh, some of them make domino theory look like you're, eminently reasonable. You're, you're a bad populist because supplying Ukraine arms creates jobs in Ohio. <laughs> right. The best right. one. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. I, yes. These are, <laughs> suffice to say, I don't find these terribly convincing. Yeah. I, you know, I think the, um, I wrote an article about this, you know, this question of, of you know, is the, 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 the argument basically goes win in Ukraine to deter Russia, uh, to deter China from invading Taiwan. The first problem with this argument is there's no, like, you know, you have to talk about, well, what is victory in Ukraine? Mm -hmm. And, like, is it is it plausible, right? Like, you know, just based on everything we've already talked about, mm -hmm. the idea that the Ukrainians are going to push the, the Russians off the map and restart, right? This is... Yeah. Vladimir Putin's going to be deposed. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. This is a long shot at best, setting aside the risks associated with yeah. some of these proposals, right? Like, so, you know... What is victory? Is it possible? And then even if you're convinced it is possible, how long is it going to take, right? Mm -hmm. If this is like, there's already a protracted conflict. This is a long war. It's only going to get, looks to be longer, right? So are you just going to ask Beijing to wait for, you know, five or 10 years or however long so we can finally get that victory in Ukraine and show them what's yeah. what? I mean, <laughs> that makes no sense, right? And there's also like this basic, you know, this is, this is a, as an emblematic of this sort of bipartisan consensus, right? If you talk big, then like people will be scared and they'll listen, right? But, you know. No, right? I mean, give credit where it's due. The Chinese are not fools, mm -hmm. right? And you can tell they're not fools just by virtue of what they're doing. They they, they're, they are in many ways acting very shrewdly, right? If you're going to deter an adversary like that, it's not going to be with bravado and sort of empty rhetoric. It's going to be with hard power. It's going to be being able to demonstrate them in a concrete way that, you know, if you try and do X, we can and will defeat you, right? Or even if you don't believe we will, it's clear that we can and you've got to bet that we might, right? So are you going to roll that those mm -hmm. dice, right? This is a quite this is a military problem, right? And now like you know this would be almost in a sense easier if there weren't trade-offs between theaters. But folks who say well we have to win in Ukraine to China either ignore or dismiss the, the the fact that you know a lot of the things that you would need and have supported sending to Ukraine to deal with the Russians are also things that are needed for the Indo-Pacific, right? Like, you know, there's a, a long list of things that we've provided to the Ukrainian defenders 
that Taiwan's forces require for their own defense, right? You know, I remember this was terribly controversial when um, Senator Hawley wrote that letter to Tony Blinken. I, I recall, um, I think Blinken himself denied it. Uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense Hicks denied it. And then you get the sense of, ooh, like there's something there, right? Yeah. And and there is, right? Yeah. This is now, there's a lot of good public analysis comparing those requirements. They overlap substantially, you know? And, and I mean, just imagine the world we'd be in if, you know, you know, the Patriots, Stingers, Javelins, you know, HIMARS, other th- so many of these other things that we've sent to Ukraine had been surged to Taiwan instead. I don't think we'd be nearly as worried as we are today about not just deterrence failure, but also possible us getting defeated by the Chinese, right, in the near future, right? Like, so, you know, all to say, you know, if if, if the argument is winning Ukraine to deter China, but it also involves taking hard power out of the Indo-Pacific, you know, I mean, it's just, it just falls apart. The argument makes no sense. Why is the... Um... Oh, we'll just make more of them. Why is it? Why is that a lazy argument? Well, because physics, <laughs> right? Like you know, it's just a, it's like this magic thing again, yeah. right? Just because you say it doesn't make it so, yeah. Yeah. right? I think JD Vance uh, has spoken really eloquently about this, not just about the fact that a lot of the production for some of these things has moved overseas, but the supply chains are gone, right? You know, you you there's a there's you know just. You, even if you get the funding, right? And there's been some struggles for that, right? It takes time. Even, you know, there's, you know, if you just look like recent history, right? Like from from authorization to production of a missile is oftentimes well over a year, mm-hmm. sometimes two years for missiles that are not like, not the most complicated things mm-hmm. in the world. I mean, complicated, but like all things are relative, right? You know, all to say you can get, even if you got the money, you had the capital, you get you get through the contract and you got to build the factories. You know, oftentimes expand production capacity. You know, line up the suppliers because sometimes you don't have enough suppliers for certain things, right? I mean, this all takes time. You know, can we do? Can we get to a place where we're producing enough for ourselves, for the Taiwan's, and, and potentially for others? I think that's probably true with 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 sustained investment, which incidentally I think you can do under a a, a, a not ridiculous top line, right? Um, if you prioritize with sustained investment, I think you can get there. But I think you know you, you, we all ought to be humble about our ability to get there quickly. We should plan conservatively, assume that it will take probably longer than we anticipate and be more expensive because everything usually is. And and that, I think, brings you to an outcome where even if you, you're betting on that, you can't bet on it quickly. So you still have to prioritize in the interim. One of the things that my friends in Silicon Valley have been beating the drum on for quite a while now that I think Washington is just now starting to pay closer attention to is that the nature of the kinds of things we've invested in militarily for the last several decades have been the big fancy weapon systems that are, you know, 30 million a pop or whatever. And our enemies use cheap drones that they can bombard us with and yeah we can knock the drone out of the sky and it costs a million dollars and it's ultimately um a very very asymmetric uh form of warfare that we engage in where where it's way more costly and time consuming to generate our armaments than it is for the other side as broadly construed as possible whether it's you know the houthi e-boy or the you know chinese state (laughs) um what do you make of what kind of strategic cultural changes it's going to take in order to accommodate that new reality? Do you, do you agree that that is a major concern? I mean, I think you have to, right? You know, there's, I mean, it's just math. Mm-hmm. 
you're you're seeing this now in the Red Sea. I, I, you 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 wince a little bit every time you look at the cost exchange. Yeah. Um, setting aside the fact that many of those weapons are also instantly applicable yeah. in the yeah. Indo-Pacific, um, you know, I think it's unavoidable that we will, the United States will, and should, I think, invest in some of these higher end things, mm-hmm. right? You know, if you want to deliver, you know, large numbers of cheap drones, for example, they're probably not going to fly far or as far, far as you'd like, which means you need something to bring them there because we're often playing away games. Which means you probably still need something like a B-21 bomber or something else big that can carry them, get them close enough to release, right? Or undersea um, submarines, things like that, right? So there, there is, I think, and should remain a place for, um, you know, more capital-intensive platforms and, and certain weapons. Um but the reality is what it is, right? Like, you know, if there are, you, you just, you cannot sustain those kinds of cost exchanges across, you know, the, uh, this or entire portfolio that we're bringing to the table versus the Chinese, for instance, right? So you should be, we should be looking for ways to um, do more, more efficiently. Um, you know, there's been good conversations about cheaper, you know, UAVs is an option to, to get there. Um, some cheaper weapons, adapting older weapons, um, Incidentally, one of the best ways to do this is arming the Taiwans, right? Because they don't need some of that fancier kit. A lot of the stuff they need, those asymmetric defense capabilities, are actually quite cheap. You can fill mm-hmm. them in large numbers because they're close enough to, and it'll make a real difference. Um, I will say, though, just for, for our standpoint, you know, this is a place where you were asking before about sort of defense industry. It's hard to imagine the defense industry getting to a place where it is truly investing in and pursuing those kinds of more cost effective options at scale. Um, in the consolidated format that it is today. It just seems like the incentives aren't there. Consolidated right? format, meaning the industry being the, the in- four primes. That's exactly right, yeah. right? Like if you've got a small number of primes who are heavily invested in these high-end platforms and that's dr- very much driving their bottom line, mm-hmm. the incentives don't seem to point in a direction. That and, would- and, and why is that specifically? Because, you know, it's sure it's more expensive, but shouldn't these things just be linear? Is it because there's just a lot more play in the joints where they get to add costs when it's these big capital intensive projects? You know, I, um, I, I think it, it's hard to argue that there is an inflation that happens, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that that's a factor in most sectors, right? Mm-hmm. I think in some cases, it's also a fact that some of these things are just extremely expensive, you know, they're, they're like much more complex, for example, than their, you know, 40 year old pressers, mm-hmm. right? If you're going to put, look at a fighter jet today, it's got stealth, it's got electronic warfare stuff, other things that like an F4 Phantom didn't. Therefore, you know, to a certain degree, it's, it's necessarily going to be more expensive, right? And you, but even if you price it in, you say, okay, but does it need to be this much more expensive? Um, and now you're having a conversation about, yeah, basic prices. Like, is it being inflated? You know, could you get, could you realistically anticipate a better price if there was competition for this particular, you know, end product, a different, or at least a different type of competition than the department currently? Uh, supports just by virtue of the fact again the industry is so consolidated um so i yeah no i it, it's hard to imagine a world where industry our industry is positioned to provide and, and i will say this like i am open to the possibility that you pursue all these more cost-effective options and in many cases it just doesn't work right because for the requirements that you you, you sort of set you know, whether it's stealth or operating under sea or certain kinds of, right? Like that it's just going to cost more. Like I'm open to that possibility, but I don't even think you're going to necessarily be able to like test that hypothesis as robustly as you should, um, unless you grapple with the reality that is the consolidated defense industry. What would you handicap the current Chinese military's capabilities at? 
um, this is something I see argued a lot, um, where, where, you know, on one side there's, there's some threat inflation. And, and then on the other side, people are like, ah, the Chinese culture is incapable of building anything to spec. It's all going to fall apart. The second it goes in the battlefield, none of this stuff has been tested. Where, where, where on that spectrum do you, do you lay? I, um, you know, this is, a. Uh... When I when I got to the Senate and started working uh, there, there was a uh, a recognition. Yes, People's Liberation Army. It's very big, but a lot of their stuff's not that good. And also, like you know, they have other problems. By twenty one twenty two, it was clear that like something had changed in our understanding, right? And maybe in their forces too. But you know, I think at this point we can say confidently that. They are large, right? They do have a lot of capabilities. They're also very close to the prospective battlefield, which mm-hmm. means that, you know, it kind of amplifies that capacity advantage, if you will. Um, but also they are getting better from a capability perspective. And in some cases, they're very good, right? Like many of their surface combatants, their their, their naval warships are actually quite good. Um, and they can make ships, which is helpful, which we, a can. lot of them, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know, which is shocking. Um, so, similarly, like, you know, there's, there's, uh, been anecdotal. We have a really nice CAD file for a very fancy boat. <laughs> yeah. Be nice or if we could make or it. one very nice, area, right? Like, you know, it's just, you know, it's, um, it's sad. It's really sad. I mean, we shouldn't even be having this conversation, right? You could imagine a world where we didn't, you know, mess around for the last two decades. And this is not, it's not, we don't even have to really, you know, worry about this, but we do. Um, they're, they're not, they've got, they're getting, they're getting very, they're getting, they're improving dramatically. Mm-hmm. I, where, where specifically, you know, just in terms of you know, the kinds of conflicts that are potentially on the horizon with China, wh- what specific elements of their capabilities should we pay close attention to? You know, I think um, to the degree, the, the, how, would I, how would I phrase it? They've got a, they've got a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. Taiwan is sort of the, the, the pacing scenario, like the, the planning function mm-hmm. here. Um, and and I, I'm under no illusion that it'd be easy for anybody, right? I mean, you know, amphibious invasions are tough. And that's ultimately, that's where the center of gravity have to be. They have to mm-hmm. deliver... A large amount of people and material by sea. That that's kind of the the heart of this. If they can do that, they win. They can't, they lose. Mm-hmm. Oversimplified, but that's kind of the gist. That's hard, right? To do all to do that, you would expect what is a, basically a large op- military operation involving all elements of their military, right? Like naval forces to not just send, right, but the forces across. Um, into what will hopefully be well-defended beaches, but forces are dispersed out to keep us out, right? Naval forces, air forces, and space, they'd be, you'd expect them to do certain things to try and blind us, make sure we can't see what's happening, can't talk to our folks forward. Um, they have, like, obviously these tremendous rocket forces, right, who would be involved, not just supporting folks out trying to kill our mm-hmm. ships and our guys, but also hitting Taiwan, right? Like, this is, there's a lot of moving pieces, and they, they would need to do it all to do it well. You know, our, as we think about this, you know, how do we stop this? The heart of it really does become, you know, that amphibious invasion, that amphibious force. If we can prevent them from delivering those forces across the strait and sustaining them, we win, right? Um, but to do that, you know, we have to grapple with the fact that they're going to put up a layered defense, right? We've got to fight through, again, these increasingly capable service combatants, increasingly capable air forces that they have. is not just the fighters, right? It's... it's um, the, the planes that go up behind the fighters that can see farther and talk to everybody and sort of quarterback. I mean, you know, they've got, you know, their air-to-air missiles, 
right? In some way, in some cases, you know, just based on public information, have a much longer range than ours. Uh, I mean, these are the kinds of things that we have to deal with. And and I'd say, you know, the nice thing is when we started working this a few years ago, there were some <laughs> different bright ideas, but you know, no one had really sort of consolidated in the U.S. military about how to solve this problem. Now there are some very good ideas. Like we have, we, I think we have defined the problem well, and there are workable solutions. Um, but really, it's a race to see can we can we put those into play quick enough to deal with this problem before <laughs> Beijing basically decides it's time to go and try. Um, that and that is that is that is the heart of the problem today. Are we going to prioritize getting after this as urgently as possible so that we can restore deterrence before it's too late, or if deterrence fails, have the option of winning a war? Or are we going to keep, you know, spreading ourselves thin around the world and, and just sort of roll the dice and, and hope, which I think is a poor choice. I'm going to ask you what you think China's timeline is on potentially invading Taiwan, as well as what your take on the Israel stuff is. But um, that's going to be exclusively for our members on YouTube. Uh, for those of you who haven't been keeping up with this, uh, for season four, we've started a new program where the final 10 to 15 minutes or so of the episode with our guest is only for our members on YouTube. Uh, there are two tiers. There are truthers and there are statesmen. <laughs> and you can uh, join at whichever tier you like to get uh, the episode early on Sundays, as well as uh, the special guest uh, exclusive content um, segments. So uh, go ahead and subscribe. Um, but going back to it, Alex, what do you think? Alex, thank you for coming on the podcast. Where can people keep up with everything that you're writing, saying, thinking? How can they reach out to you um, and, and listen to everything that you have to say? Hey, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I really enjoy the conversation. I'm, uh, I think the main way would be, I, I'm on Twitter, um, Alex yeah. underscore AGBG, <laughs> or I guess X, yeah. as it were. Um, and then uh, my uh, my Heritage uh, page, if you just Google my name and Heritage, um, has my latest publications as well. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, for everything you do. It's, it's great to uh, be able to have you on shows like this now, uh, because uh, there's all these brilliant, brilliant staffers. We've been talking about some before the show started rolling that I can't have on um, that. Uh, and so it's, it's nice to, to finally be able to, to talk to you um, live. Thank you so much. Very much. Likewise. Thank you. We're grateful as always this week to bring you this episode in partnership with Upward.News. Upward.News is a fantastic political news website run by our friend Ari. Uh, their daily brief brings you need-to-know news and insights that you won't find in the mainstream media. They've put out fantastic content on Instagram, on Twitter, and many other platforms. Sign up for their newsletters at Upward.News. Um, you know, even with political insiders, many of whom listen to this, this show, it's helpful to have people who can collate the most important news items happening uh, across the world every single week. And Ari does that with his various newsletters at Upward.News. Once again, that's Upward.News. Thank you so much for helping bring Moment of Truth to our audience. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We certainly enjoyed taping it. Once again, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of this show, 130 gajillion episodes long at this point. You can find everything else we have cooking as an organization. You can find the application for the Fellowship for American Statecraft, which is where we pay kids $3,000 a month for three months to get their first job in Washington. You can find a sign-up form for AM Fridays, our summer lecture series on the Hill. The first round for the spring starts on February 22nd, so if you want free chick 
Chick-fil-A and to hear how uh, to think about all of America, uh, American Moments priorities, ranging from immigration to trade to family policy and much, much more. You can sign up for those lunches. They'll be happening uh, in the United States Senate buildings uh, once more. Um, reach out to us, uh, nick at americanmoment.org, sarab at americanmoment.org, if we can ever be helpful with anything. Uh, we are continuing to grow this movement of people preparing for 2024, preparing for hopefully a bunch of new congressmen that are going to get elected in order to help grow this talent pipeline in Washington. We're grateful, as always, that you guys listen, rate and review the podcast, and we will see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment podcast taped at the Conservative Partnership Campus Studios and is produced by Jake Mercier, Jared Cummings, Tiffany Kutris, and Matthew Pearson. Our intro song is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich, and our website is AmericanMoment.org.